This is Terrible Parables, a podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, in which a Bible scholar, a pastor, and an anxious Christian look for some good news and passages of Scripture that are difficult, frightening, or particularly, well, terrible. I'm your host, Callie Yee, and in a little bit, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Todd Brewer and Brian Gerald. Join us as we find that sometimes the spooky things that go bump in the night are just figments of our imaginations. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. And while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the servant of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. (laughs) (laughs) Now, out of all the parables we are doing, this is the one that I am least familiar with. So, guys, what makes this parable so terrible? Hellfire and brimstone. <laughs> Judgment on y'all. Beef, wheat, not weeds. Why is your preacher Southern? Uh, because all the best preachers are Southern. 
And I'm, I'm from Pennsylvania, so that's a rag on me, not just anything else. <laughs> 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 oh, my gosh. Todd. I love it, man. You, I really appreciated what you said earlier in our sort of pre-production work on this. Tell, tell us why this parable is so terrible and why my southern accent, uh, Hellfire Brimstone Man, is maybe uh, more accurate we care to admit. Well, I, I think this parable touches um, a kind of broader preaching approach that's found in certain quarters of Christianity, which is the turn or burn, the uh, hellfire and brimstone, make a decision now uh, or else the eternal fire and lava and lake will be, of, of and torment will be yours. I mean, even extending to, to people like Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God, mm. the picture of God that emerges is one who's quite vindictive and should be feared above all else. Out of a response of fear, Christianity is, is meant to kind of provoke a decision and a turning in that way. Yeah, there's, there's the hellfire and brimstone piece to this parable as well. I also think this happened in some of the other parables that we are talking about or will talk about. Uh, is there's a moral application vacuum here. Jesus actually explains the parable to us, and what we get from the parable is just a snapshot of what uh, a final judgment will look like. Hmm. And so there's not a sort of moral takeaway from this passage, which means our intuition as human beings who want to do things to earn our own righteousness will insert things into this parable and to some maybe in a application part of a teaching or a sermon that was never meant to be a part of the parable. So there is no um, sort of, therefore, go and do likewise at the end of this parable like there are with with others. Uh, it's really just a description of, of what is coming, and it is, there's some fire and judgment. You know, we can joke about it, but let's stick with it and, and kind of sit in it for a little bit. But I think when you look at the ways this parable is terrible, I'm not sure it's the final judgment piece that's the most terrible part of it. It's the way that we take a parable which has no moral application associated with it and then fill it in with whatever our favorite moral uh, sort of the, the moral feelings du jour, as it were, whatever our moral feeling is of, of today. That's what we it will insert into this parable in a way that's ultimately unhelpful, and it takes and adds on to something Jesus said instead of just leaving it as something Jesus taught. Brian, that is a great point to make because, I mean, with people who are reading this parable for the first time, I mean, people are tempted to, once again, Google it or mm -hmm. look to sermons that have been preached on it. And sometimes, actually oftentimes, they do moralize it. So right. I think that's a great point that you're... Are you in the weed or are you in the weeds, yes. right? right? And and we've we either you've either listened to or will listen to if you're part of listening to this series our talk about, you know, the parable of the sower and it's mm. like are you part of the which soil are you? And this yeah. is sort of the same thing because you're telling people are you weed are you weeds and it's like a wheat can't change into weeds and a and vice versa, you know, weed can't change itself to, to wheat. There's something else going on here that I think gets more to the heart of Jesus's ministry than just you know, finger wagging hellfire and brimstone. That is so refreshing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the t tendency towards moralizing points, I think, is is just kind of endemic when it comes to preaching on Jesus's preaching. You know, every sermon has to have an application, right? And so you, you fill in text that 
might not otherwise be morally specific or have a given moral point with whatever it is that happens to be of interest to you at the time or whatever happens to be culturally pressing at the time. So we create these kind of artificial vice and virtue lists that may or may not have any relation to anything in scripture and are often far more cultural than they are actually kind of Christian or, or scriptural. It kind of sounds like when uh, college students are writing a paper and they they need to like get to like the fifth page, <laughs> and so because of that, um, they just like put as yes. many as many filler words as they can, or yes. they look on thesaurus.com of like how many adjectives can I put into this <laughs> one thing to describe this one thing. Um, that kind of just sounds like what some sermons do. Yeah, they're morally reductive readings of Jesus of Jesus's teaching. And yeah. and you know what the thing is though, we are going to get to sort of a moral kernel at the end of this, right? I mean, we're not saying there's not a moral kernel or something that will apply to us, but our intent is to moralize it, but the way that Jesus I think intends for this parable to be understood what we're going to find is the moral implication of this reading and the sort of quote-unquote application part of it is going to upend our apple cart in terms of what our expectations of moral application actually are. And and that that is whatever tradition you're from. If you're from a more sort of historic conservative, if you're more for a contemporary progressive condition, like it, it, this parable is going to upend everything we think we know about um, sort of creating a a... a purity culture mm. or a, a group that has pure ideology, but I don't want to jump ahead. Are you saying Jesus is going to tick off everyone? Uh, again? <laughs> yes. Wait, yes. Jesus, Jesus upends and turns our entire culture like upside down. What? I mean, he wasn't a 21st century Christian, so oh. that has a tendency to happen. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, let's, let's see. Hey, let's, let's see how many, um, sort of people can get angry at us for going after their sacred cows in this podcast today because I think it's going to happen but stick with us because if you follow Jesus long enough you'll find something better at the other end than our sacred cows all right Todd so what is a tear so this is actually really fascinating to me and I think Potentially to other people. Because some interpretations say that it's a, like a weed. But yeah. it, a tear is something specific. It's something different. Well, I mean, tear is just an old English word. Okay. And I, I mm. prefer the language of tear here because it. Um, if we say it's a weed, we tend to assume it's like a dandelion or... Mm. Maybe thistle. A thistle. Or, or some, something harmless like that. Right, right. But... What's actually going on here is this is a weed of sorts that looks like wheat in the early stages and only later of in the later stages of its growth does it appear different from wheat. So oh. there's actually been some inter- really interesting studies on, you know, what sub variety of weed is this. And there was a paper recently, I want to say a New Testament studies journal, that a botanist looked at this parable and oh. tried to determine, and I think successfully, uh, he looked at which variety of weed this could be. And then he found some really kind of dark and, um, but nevertheless interesting paper written in the 19th century before ethics um, of the 20th century, oh. where someone had actually taken this variety of weed 
and did experiments to find out how much of it could people consume without, uh, you know, what percent could they eat uh, in mm. their grain? Because it, it ha- this is a weed that shows up in, in wheat fields pretty commonly. And what, what he found is he did all sorts of experiments with like horses and then and smaller animals where he gave them varying percentages of this weed. And oh. if you give too much of the weed, uh, the horse dies. And this, Oh, gosh. Yeah, this person found this out. And if oh. you give them a little bit less than that, they go into a coma. Oh. And if you, get, if you give them a little less than that, then they hallucinate and have kind of psychedelic and they um, did this whoa. to horses? It did this to horses and a, a number of other animals, yeah. That would not fly today. Yeah, well, right. At all. Poor right. horses. And yeah. then and then this article connected it to the use of the term zizanoi, the Greek, um, for this used for weed, and found that actually in Greco-Roman times, they used this quite intentionally as sort of a, a kind of a medicine for, uh, that would uh, dull people's pain, sense of pain. Um, if, but it was also known as a psychedelic. So if you had too much of it, it would be it would it would give you visions and dreams and things. So the takeaway is that you know the enemy comes and sows the field. He's not just planting dandelions in your crops because he wants to like make your harvest inconvenient. He's planting a psychedelic, brain damaging, coma inducing killer plant that is designed that that seems specifically tailored to like kill people when eaten in too high quantity. And the terror looks like wheat, doesn't it? Right. And yeah. it looks like a, a, a wheat in the early growth stages. Yeah. The big takeaway here isn't that this is a threat to the farmer's crop. These weeds aren't going to take nutrients from the wheat or anything like that. I think the big takeaway in light of this kind of research is that this is a harvest, which is uh, a weed, which is dangerous to the harvest itself and, and it's and the viability of its being consumed by people. Mm. Right. Um, right. So it's about the harvest, not about the seed that's planted. Yeah. It's not like the weed is a particular threat to okay. the wheat okay. or anything like that. It, it makes me wonder then. So in this parable, there's a differentiation between the workers and the reapers, right? Because the workers are the ones doing the work. And then it's like, no, hold off. We're going to get reapers to come in and do the the, the harvest part of it. And they, they're almost specialized in figuring this out, right? Because this is a life and death situation when you've got this plant growing in, in your crop. So the workers may not be, you know, skilled enough or the, they may not be there enough. I mean, would you is that a right way of understanding the text, you think? I mean, potentially. <laughs> Sorry, I've done it to myself. So as a general rule of thumb, I don't like to try to introduce too much kind of first century agrarian practices that could lead to a, an over-interpreting of the parable. Mm. Because if you go down that path too far, I mean, scholars will say it's actually not realistic to have different reapers from the from workers, that, that these yeah, would be yeah. one and the same, and it's, and it's a sign that the parable in Matthew has been uh, kind of allegorized in ways that are unrealistic and therefore inauthentic and ahistorical, and yeah, therefore yeah, Jesus didn't teach it. That should be like our new... Um, like our new kind of branding, you know, we should put that on a sweatshirt of like, don't, don't make allegories, you know, <laughs> I'm even, not against even, allegory. Even I'm just, first century. Ones. I'm just against over interpreting. Don't make unnecessary allegories. Right. There. There right. Yeah. And that's, that's okay. fair. Cause, cause how, about, is, how about like, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> and there's a sense where let's give the, the gospel writers their due, right? They, they are aware that people who aren't first century Palestinians are going to be reading this text. Ergo, therefore, 
you know, uh, they probably give us everything we need to know about the context to understand it well. Yeah, and it's perfectly, like, reasonable that Jesus could be adding layers of kind of meaning on this parable that are slightly unrealistic to practices in that day. Like, right. let's just, let's leave it open to the possibility that Jesus knew actual practices and he's giving slight twists to them in, in ways that both he and his hearers would have understood to be kind of different from how things are actually done. It gives it more of a emphasis though on this, this really surprising piece, I think of the text, right? Which is don't separate them yet. Don't yeah. pull them apart yet. Yeah. And, and I think what strikes me at the ministry of Jesus, when you do get to later on in his ministry, uh, you see that Jesus is very, very comfortable letting wheat and tares hang out together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, the primary example I see of this is Jesus does like Jesus knows Judas is the betrayer, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And yet he doesn't separate him out. He, he's, he holds off on that. Even at the last supper, when, when it's time for Judas to go and, and sort of begin the, the set of dominoes of his betrayal that lead to Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' words are like, Hey man, if you're going to go do it, do it now, you know, not get out, you know, not leave, not, um, you know, and and again, Jesus had his entire ministry to kick out Judas, but he doesn't. Mm -mm. And there's a sense in which when you look at Jesus's ministry, whether it's very large crowds that are of sort of mixed uh, socioeconomic classes, whether it's um, even his own disciples, I think Jesus is more comfortable living in a mixed um, a mixed field than we are. And if you look at Jesus's ministry, you know, we can see him acting that out of, I'm not going to separate the wheat and the tares yet. As uncomfortable and as scary and as life-threatening as it may be, it's better to wait. And I think that's a remarkable thing about Jesus's ministry, and one of the ways in which this parable is describing uh, Jesus in a way that's um, not something we would intuit uh, if as human beings. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's so common nowadays, actually, because we know the characters, right? There are good guys in the Gospels, and there are bad guys in the Gospels. We like right. these kind of white and black hat mm. um, divisions. Mm-hmm. And what we do with that is that we then presume that Jesus is actually, um, because he's self-admittedly divisive, you know, I've not come to bring peace but a sword and three three against two, et cetera. We assume that Jesus is actually pushing away people who are against him rather than trying to beckon and call them to him. One way this works itself out is when it... uh, People love to say that Jesus, uh, you know, a hallmark of his ministry was that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And, you know, I've, I've come for the sick, but for not the for sick. the right, righteous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? The healthy have no need of a doctor. But in saying that, it actually overlooks the fact that Jesus ate with Pharisees just as much as he did with tax collectors and sinners. He does. He's right. an indiscriminate. Wait, he does? Yes. I've done the tallies. In Luke's okay. gospel, he eats with Pharisees as much as he does with, with tax collectors and sinners. I actually didn't know that. So that is, yeah. yeah. So huh. so he's not wow. trying to like, he's not saying, no Pharisees, you know, you're a, you're Jagovs and I don't want to like be around <laughs> you. But he's not like... Intentionally pushing people away. Like to Jesus, there are no enemies. That's true. Yeah. He's making consistent appeal to them throughout his gospel. Whenever he's with Pharisees and, you know, he does something that upsets the Pharisees, he he provides a rationale. When he does it again and he's eating with them again, you know, they're grumbling and he says, All right, let me tell you some parables. 
right. then when they do it again, he like Jesus is not trying to push people away. Right. Um, it, it's remarkable um, that at the end of Jesus's life. Um, people think of Jesus as someone who's like, okay, well, he's for the poor and for the needy, right? And you get that. But at the end of Jesus's life, you have this incredibly wealthy man named Joseph of, of, of Arimathea, and he is the one who pays for all of Jesus's funeral expenses because he is somebody who is actively following Jesus and has been welcomed into that place and pays for the tomb and 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 all of these things. Very wealthy guy. So we can't even say that Jesus is just slumming it with the poor people. He's also preaching to those who are wealthy. He'll he, he does reach out to everyone. He does not separate the wheat from the weeds in his earthly ministry in a way that we would think of that happening. Yeah. Yeah, and, and even going into the second century, the, the composition of the church was not exclusively poor, for example. Right, right. Um, much to the scandal of, of the Romans. Mm, you know, they yeah. say, uh, you know, the fact that the poor illiterates are, are becoming Christians, you know, we would understand that because they're, they're not worth anything. Right. But uh, rich people are, people of, <laughs> of social standing, and this is a scandal to them. That's the real scandal in right, some senses. Right, Because it's using kind of terms and valuations that they sort of know and accept. The right kind of people are actually becoming Christians in the second yeah, century. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which is why we get anti-Christian polemics in the second century. But I think, you know, we, we, we tend to miss out the, the indiscriminate nature of Jesus's ministry. The fact that he has, uh, he came not to judge, but to appeal to all. Right. He came yeah. to seek and save the lost. Yeah. Everybody's lost. Mm, <laughs> so yeah. He's seeking and saving everybody. Yeah. yeah. So I think with this parable, you know, we like to sort of position ourselves potentially as the workers <laughs> and do mm. the exact opposite of what Jesus says. We right. lean into the judgment. We like to recognize differences between people who are worthy and those who are unworthy. And this is a parable that says that the entirety of that enterprise the way that we think about judgment, the way we, we like to push some people away and pull others closer has no bearing whatsoever in this parable. Jesus says, let it be. <laughs> so this parable is a fierce reminder of what grace is like, right? Yeah, the flip side of the absence of judgment is, is, is grace. Is grace to the undeserving. Yeah. And Bingo. none of us deserve it. Yes, this is a parable of grace, funny enough. In that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even with all the hellfire and brimstone. Yes. You read uh, fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth and you're like, oh, that, those are very scary words. But when it comes down to it, this is about grace. Yeah. This is about the mixed composition of the world. And it's not simply, uh, and, and the, the word to us is to cool our jets. Mm. It is, uh, you know, should we chop this tree down? No, give it another year uh, to reference another parable in, right, in right. Luke's gospel. So I have a quote from y'all. Um, it's from Nick Cave. Uh, and it's his response to a fan's question about cancel culture. And that's a phrase we've heard all too often. Uh, but what he has to say. To? It's such a tired term. I know, I know. I know. We need a better word for it. But what he has to say is really beautiful. 
And so he says, mercy is a value that should be at the heart of any functioning and tolerant society. Mercy ultimately acknowledges that we are all imperfect and in doing so allows us the oxygen to breathe, to feel protected within a society through our mutual fallibility. Without mercy, a society loses its soul and devours itself. Yet mercy is not a given. It is a value we must nurture and aspire to. Tolerance allows the spirit of inquiry, the confidence to roam freely, to make mistakes, to self-correct, to be bold, to dare to doubt, and in the process to chance upon new and more advanced ideas. Without mercy, society grows inflexible, fearful, vindictive, and humorless. And he continues with, Francis, you've asked about cancel culture. As far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. Political Mm. correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. Seculosity. It's once honorable attempt to reimagine our society in a more equitable way now embodies all the worst aspects that religion has to offer and none of the beauty moral certainty and self-righteousness shorn even of the capacity for redemption it has become quite literally bad religion run amok woof yeah a, a cult i mean he's is he reading the parable of the wheaton's I, <laughs> like did he actually like was this written beforehand or did he just did this did he just come up with this on the fly? Like that is, it's so compelling. I, I have a note in with his agent. I tried to get him on the podcast, but he just <laughs> wasn't available. I mean, what he's saying essentially is the parable's point, which is that a, a culture of judgment has many unforeseen uh, consequences. That uh, if you're if you're seeking to uh, have a, a uniformity, if you're seeking to judge everyone, then you will pull up the wheat with the weeds. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's just makes things worse. In the in the internet age, something that I think we're learning more and more about is the human default mode of judgment. And and again, it, it was there all the time, but now we've got it digitized and we can analyze it and there's analytics that mm. kind of talk about mm-hmm. what human judgment looks like. And I think what we take away from you know the past, you know, decade or two that we've had the internet is that the human default setting is I want to be part of a pure community and I want to eradicate mm. that, which is different from, from the community standards. Yes. But then what we find out is the community standards change, the community standards shift, and then people are scrambling to keep up. And it's just really hard to have a community based exclusively on purity, purity of thought, purity of action, purity of belief. Because um, an- another term that we at Mockingbird have used is purity spiral. Once you have something that's pure, how can you make it more pure? And then how can you make it more pure? And eventually what's going to happen, to use the language of our parable today, what you're going to do, there's there's really only two options if you pull up the the harvest early. The first option, some of the wheat is going to be lost because you've accidentally identified it as a tear, Mm -hmm. meaning there's some very good people, so to speak, who are going to get trampled under our need for purity. Or you're going to let in more tear than you need. And like we've said a minute ago, tear isn't just a weed. It's a, it's a dangerous and harmful chemical. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, if you, if you're, you're going to harvest it incorrectly, you're going to pull in more weeds and your, your community will be sort of poisoned. It will be, um, uh, it will fall apart. It won't be pure and you, people will get sick and they'll get hurt and they'll get injured. This is just a long roundabout way of saying that 
our drive for purity runs exactly in the opposite direction of what Jesus wants for us. Hmm. Whether that's purity of political ideology, whether it's purity of, of behavior again, and this is something that runs equally true in more conservative and progressive strains of the Christian faith. No, when purity is your goal over mercy, everything's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in many senses, like so much of human history uh, testifies to the fact that the urge and the and the sort of push towards purity leads to unforeseen collateral damage. Right. Right. Um, oh yeah. I mean. Gosh, like the Salem witch trials. The <laughs> <laughs> right, she's right, a witch. Right. Burn her, burn her. Right. <laughs> I mean, in some senses, this parable says you can't overdo mercy. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's right. right. And uh, and and it's not our job to do anything but mercy. Yeah. <laughs> and a, if you if you do judgment, you will overdo judgment. And right. you, yes. but you can't overdo mercy. So we mm-hmm. need to stay in our lane. I like that, that, Callie. Yeah, Yeah. stay in our lane. The the whole thing here, again, when you look at this parable, the the, the children of the sons of God, i.e. you and me, we're the seeds. We're not the workers. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. so Jesus explicitly says that the the workers, the reapers, whatever, those are the the angelic uh, workers of the Lord in this sense. And so if we're staying in our lane uh, and we are content to be the ones who have given over the task of judging to the heavens, things will be much better for everybody involved. (laughs) And thank God when we don't stay in our lane, when we turn on our signal and go to the other lane, God forgives us for that. That's right. I like the imagery of stay in our lane because I think there is a kind of freedom and release from the business of judgment. Hmm. In other words, if it's not my job to be a kind of an inspector of other people's relative righteousness. Yeah. Then there's some real kind of, uh, it, it, it frees me and releases me to, in some senses, love. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a weight off our shoulders. Right, because I'm, I'm not given to, it's, a, it's the burden of scrutiny taken off of me, number one, mm-hmm. and of, for me to do for other people. It creates the space where we can deal with people on their own terms without trying to push them out and and judge them or whatever, uh, whether right, it be socially, right. interpersonally. Um, I mean, just can you imagine if you were uh, scrutinizing the wheat or the weeds of of, of someone who you were married to? <laughs> or, oh yeah, right. Yeah. If it's if oh. you think it's your job to judge them according to and sift through their 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 kind of days actions for for worth and. Uh, unworth. It reminds me of a story I heard once about a campus ministry worker, and he was at a friend of mine. He was fundraising for his campus ministry, and uh, asked for coffee. and And the pastor asked, "What do you What do you think you're like? How would you describe your mission? Like, what are you trying to do with this campus ministry?" And he said, um, "I consider myself to be like a fruit inspector." He's talking oh. about the fruit of the spirit. Mm. I haven't heard that term in decades. Fruit inspector, <laughs> right? And so he said, "I'm I'm there to inspect and help people." Uh, grow in the fruit of the spirit, yeah. and uh, and to me, I think that's a really good example of how uh, we're not staying in our lane, right? Yeah, that this idea of sort of judging people, sifting them, uh, can and and you know, I don't think that campus ministry worker was on campus for very long. If I remember <laughs> the circumstances, correctly. no, he moved to my campus in, in college ministry. He like oh. he like, went from yours to mine. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's a sense in which. Um, Part of the reason why I am in the tradition that I'm in now is because I actually had a pastor come and say to me, um, 
that that's not my job, and that's not anybody. It's God's job, and um, God is the one who can inspect the fruit. God is the one who can look and say, oh, there's some nutrients. Let's fertilize the soil a little bit to, to expand the parable out beyond it, its original means. Um, and that it's God's going to be the one who's going to tear the fruit, the, the, the wheat and the weeds, um, and separate them in my own heart even. Uh, that, that at the end of the day... Uh, the wheat and the tares in my own spirit, the, the 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 tares that will eventually kill me, and the wheat that has been redeemed by the Lord, that will be separated. And like to me, that's good news as, as well as anything else from this text. That there will come a day when the wheat and the weeds in my own spirit are going to be separated. Probably a little more allegorical than Todd would like for the the reading, but <laughs> yes, I'd like to note my objection of Brian's extension of the metaphor. <laughs> Todd does not like extended my extended metaphors. Can I uh, share with you guys? Uh, uh, something my one of my favorite professors said to us. Yeah. So in my theology class, a lot of us were um, studying to be church workers or studying Christian ministry. And so he was like, the best advice that I can give you is to stay the hell out of God's way. That's yeah. the advice that he gave us. <laughs> I love it. And stay the hell out of God's I wrote way. that at the top of my paper and I've remembered it ever since. Yeah, it's not our, it's not our business. Thank God for that. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I think everyone has had, most people have had some experience of a church, which is trying to divide the wheat in the weeds and making those kinds of purity, uh, you know, decisions and all those kinds of things. And, you know, the flip side of it is that actually the church, uh, Christianity, God, Jesus are actually in the business of mercy. Yeah. Mm. Um, Yeah. So... I'll tell one more story. It may, it may can be cut. It's not my favorite story, but I think it gets to the point. Um, there was a time where I actually was was thinking about being a judge. I'm a I'm a like so many other people. Like you know, a real judge, like a real judge, With not bro- not a legal one. Robes but a, and wigs. A beer judge. A beer judge. I oh. was going through the training process to become a. Uh, BJCP, a beer judging certified uh, person. Do you still get a gavel? <laughs> Uh, I could have a I could have a gavel. It would be delightful. But the, been- this is the best judging opportunity if you can get it, because you would basically be certified to go to homebrew competitions for people who do homebrewing, and then you get to judge everybody's homebrew. And you know, there's good and bad that comes from that because not everybody's homebrew is really great. But I I decided not to do that for two reasons because I homebrew. I enjoy homebrewing. First, the moment that I brought judgment into my hobby, it completely ruined it. Uh. Uh, because because then I could not enjoy my own beer that I was making because a everyone else was doing better, and b um, in my head I just had this this standard that I couldn't live up to. Hmm. And so I just thought all my beer was terrible and I hated it. And I saw everybody else what they were doing. It was so much better that it just, I was despondent. And so, um, I judged a couple of homebrew competitions and it was fun. And there were a bunch of guys who were really passionate about homebrew and beer and, and they were all talking about everyone's beers and, and it was a really great community of people, but that element of judgment completely ruined it. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things I take away from this parable is, again, if we're going to stay in our lane, if judgment <laughs> is not something that is uh, part of our job description in the kingdom of God in this particular capacity, when we bring it in, it's bad for us too, because mm. then we can't turn it off in our brains. We can't um, be with people as Jesus was with people, and then we can't love and experience the love that God had in store for us, because all we're thinking about is judgment. Thank you for listening to Terrible Parables. You can find us on the web at ember.com. Audio production for Terrible Parables is provided by TJ Hester. 
Please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you've had a not so terrible time. Bye.